suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I've Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, entertaining, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through the high seas of life. This is part five of an episodic adventure that we have entitled... Terry Billita, The Torture of the Talented. And before we even begin a discussion of the life of Judy Collins, let me make clear, it pains me to no end to think that the lives of so many talented artists that I have admired over the years, their lives were filled with and even at times overwhelmed by depression, dejection, despondency, disappointment, heartache, heartbreak, loneliness, betrayal, and torment to such a degree that their lives proved devastated or proved not worth living at all. That great lighters like writers like Richard Brodigan, Jonathan Toole, David Foster Wallace, uh, Hemingway, Virginia Woolf, and Hunter Thompson just to name a few, found their lives so wretched they decided to end it all. It's just, it's just so sad. As is the fact that William Faulkner proved to be an outright total drunk. That Tennessee Williams was so out of it due drugs and alcohol abuse that he choked to death on a bottle cap. That F. Scott Fitzgerald's life, despite his obvious genius, was brought to an early end due to destructive alcoholism just pains me terribly. Then try to imagine the incomparable Stephen King alone at his writing desk composing his great works, but able to do so only by stuffing Tampax up his nostrils to staunch the bleeding due cocaine addiction, among other disabling drugs to which he was so addicted that pulsated through his body. I mean, it really is disheartening and pathetic. And, And the list goes on. Dylan Thomas, John Cheever, Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, we've already discussed musicians, you know, in the 27 Club and near misses. You know, people like Brian Jones, Joplin, Amy Winehouse, Jim Morrison, Hendrix. And, and you know, artists like painters don't escape the nightmare either. Um, Toulouse Lautrec, Warhol, Jackson Pollock, Kincaid, Rothko, ad nauseum. And, and so it is not without a sense of distress and anguish. We pursue terribilita, the torture of the talented. And so at long last, as I've promised in earlier episodes of this series, um, to paraphrase somebody famous, please allow me to introduce, if you would, a woman of wealth and taste, world-renowned folk singer, Judy 
Collins. And, and for those of you who may not recognize the name Judy Collins, she lives on, now aged 83, still singing, still performing, which, by the way, is an interesting issue in and of itself, which we will remark upon um, later in this series. And it's a subject that French President Charles de Gaulle thought about quite often. And therefore, if de Gaulle thought about it, we're going to think about it. So where, just where should we begin the story of Judy Collins? Well, how about 23 years before Judy Collins was born? That seems about right, um, the appropriate place to start the story. Well, at least for, for, for someone like me. For in 1916, Sigmund Freud published a famous paper in which he wrote that from his hard work and long experience studying such things, he had concluded that the more one achieves success and wealth in life, the less likely it is that such person will be happy. I mean, this is a calamitous finding. And, and while Judy Collins is not proof that Freud was right, she is certainly not proof that he was wrong, either despite uh, the recent release of a, a longitudinal study authored by some social science researchers that indicates the famous father of psychoanalysis, Freud himself, might have been wrong about such matters. Meaning, we need to toss into the waste bin of history. One more defanged theory of the great Dr. Freud, like has been done with some of his other theories like female hysteria and penis envy. Though the life of Judy Collins may, you know, may be of, of such nature that as respects those last two theories of Freud, we may be forced to say, not so fast. Now, Judy Collins was a woman blessed by the gods with superior talent. Though she has never been thought of in terms of pure genius, talent, yes, uh, genius, no. She was a, a, a gifted, a magnificent, uh, beautiful, angelic voice arose from her body, the voice of a goddess. And she was herself extremely beautiful and very much a product of the 1960s, the age of peace and love and all that. And she would rise to iconic status, hit the apex of her career in the late 1960s and in the early 1970s. Judy Collins was the acknowledged muse for Stephen Stills, he of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young fame, when he wrote, composed, and sung his song, his most famous masterpiece, hit song, the anthem, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. That was her. Possessed of rare talent and seemingly with everything it would take for one to lead a successful and happy life, Judy Collins is and remains testament to an argument for the conviction that great talent 
to be appears to be unusually highly correlated with a life disfigured by great torment. Freud's finding, remember. So questions for you to ponder. How much would you sacrifice for fame and fortune? How bad do you want it? Would you be willing to sacrifice your husband, your child, your family, your very soul? Would you? Your morality in the quest to make it, to become a rock god. Would you be willing to give up everything in the pursuit of rock and roll glory? Well, would you? Well, let me let me assure you that Judy Collins was ready. She was totally committed. She pursued fame with the passion of a crack addict hunting down his next rock. She had the manic intensity of, of Walter White, but <laughs> I think she lacked the conscience possessed by Jesse, you know, Walter's troubled, but somehow honorable and lovable sidekick in Breaking Bad. Today, Collins remains as completely devoted to the concept of cognitive dissonance as she was 50 years ago. And inherent to the principle of the principle that others are always to blame for her problems, she shirked all personal responsibility in her lust for fame, fortune, drugs, alcohol, and men. Lots of men. Except for that one weird year, that one year only during which year she became a lesbian. But a lesbian only at night, she says. In the dark only, she tells us. Hmm, very odd, but, uh, but okay. It's sort of the sexual equivalent of that extremely rare night blindness known as a Gucci disease, in which people whose sight is perfectly normal, um, perfectly normal during daylight hours, but prove to be blind at night for reasons that are thought to be linked to certain genetic mutations, but which cause remains medically still uncertain. So is, is the rarely seen I was a lesbian claim, but only at night, only in the dark. Well, you know, let's move on. Then, after that lesbian year, Collins was to retreat to that awful patriarchal society run by men. Men she found so troublesome. Men, those cretinous creatures she could never trust. Hmm. Back to those men for sex, communal sex, group sex. Well, for any sex, really. I tell you this because, because well, she told me. Well, she told me in the world in her autobiography. Collins tells the story of her sexual escapades with men, lots of men, without apparent shame or evidence of guilt. She's a modern, liberated woman who argues that, that, that that's just the way it was back then. All those men coming and going. You know, when someone is always, you know, they always say, all those men, all those men. You know, maybe it's not the men. Maybe it was her. She ever think about that? 
Just a thought. In any event, Collins apparently gave as much as she got. Oh boy, I can um, I can feel at this point a, di- a digression coming coming on right now. Collins isn't asking for any sympathy or pity. All those men, and and for this, I have to tell you, I am very grateful. It's not like basketball legend Jerry West, whom in his autobiography he felt impa- impelled to share with his unfortunate readers, um, unfortunately, I was one of them, in, in a quest for sympathy that for decade after decade, West had suffered miserably from the menace, you know, all the terrible torments one might expect that emanate from, that flow from, that unbridled, uninhibited, unmanageable, uncontrollable, unimaginable curse that takes the form of women that manifested in his repulsive, odious sex addiction. Women infested him like vermin, the poor guy. They were like swarms of ants or cockroaches. They just took over his house, the poor guy. It was terrible. Everywhere he looked, there were women, lots of women, everywhere. He could never rid of himself of them. And it wasn't his fault. What could he do? What could he do? It was just him, Jerry West, all alone against that plague of all those locusts. I mean, I mean women. It was, it was almost biblical. God, the, the nightmare of it all. It was a nightmarish battle. The, you know, sort of the Stalingrad of sex from which there proved to be no way to disengage, no release. You know, like German Field Marshal Paulus at Stalingrad, Jerry West could not pull out. As was the case when, despite massive, heroic efforts made by German General Manstein to relieve Paulus's beleaguered, besieged 6th Army at Stalingrad, it was soon learned no possible relief was coming. Oh, well, there was some release. Who knew how bad things were for this NBA legend whose likeness is still used by the NBA. Jerry West is still the man. And and here it is, for all these years now, I have always imagined that Jerry West had lost eight of his nine NBA final appearances to those hated Boston Celtics led by, you know, Bill Russell, John Havlicek, Dave Cowens, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, and company, because I thought Jerry West had just run out of gas. Well, I, w- I was close. Who knew the man played while, while he was sick, disabled, and weakened by sex addiction? As it turns out, West literally had not run out of gas. He'd run out of juice. The poor guy had nothing more to give. Oh, my God, he had been crucified. Well, sort of. By all those women. They had just drained him. My God. 
Well, he can't be blamed. He tells us it was not his fault. He was a victim of all those women just possessed, like an alien invasion. Oh, the silent suffering. It's Joseph Conrad's The Horror, The Horror all over again. And as, you know, as I relate this tale, I have to tell you, I am suddenly reminded of the time I was in Chicago on a business trip in a taxi on my way to O'Hare Airport when my Nigerian cab driver regaled me with a remarkable, I mean, just a memorable tale. Every year, apparently, he traveled back to Lagos, Nigeria for two to three months. It was simply a function of when did his money finally run out? Then he'd return to Chicago. And he made this annual pilgrimage because in Nigeria, with all the money he had saved from driving a taxi seven days a week in Chicago for 12 hours a day, he became, for whatever period of time, his money might allow him to spend in Nigeria, driving around in the streets of Lagos in his yellow Cadillac. He became, for that cherished period of time he related to me, a king with all the perks accruing a king. I mean, he spoke wistfully in in an almost reverential tone of a voice, as if I were in a church. I swear I could see mists of tears in his eyes as he told me, you know, when he declared, Sir, I tell you, so many women's, so many women's. It's like Jerry West. So anyway, in it's almost like when in 1992 on that on the campaign trail when Bill Clinton, I mean, he's so movingly, so memorably, and with such empathy, told that guy in the crowd, I feel your pain. And, and you know what? You just had to believe Clinton. He was so good. And I, and I believe 100%, even today, 100%, that that Nigerian taxi driver told me the truth when he told me of his kingship. He seemed to have been transported back to Lagos merely by recounting his experience. And this is a a dangerous moment for anybody in the backseat of a taxi maneuvering through Chicago traffic on the way to the, on on the Kennedy Expressway on the way to O'Hare when your driver is really no longer in the present. He is in Nigeria. By the way, there was no Jerry West seeking sympathy in that guy that day. No way. Well, wait a minute. I have somehow... I think simultaneously both got ahead of the story and off the point. So let's get back to Judy Collins. She felt it important enough to inform the readers, of which I was one, 14 times in the first 161 pages of that uh, that autobiography of her sexual inclinations and promiscuity. 16 times in 141 pages, simply ascribing her behavior as a coherent product 
of the 1960s and 1970s, the age of Aquarius, um, free love and all that. She was just conforming to the morality, or lack thereof, of the age. Well, wasn't she? She did. She was just doing what liber any liberated woman would do back then. And her repetition of this point suggests this is something she is quite proud of, but maybe not. My personal impression is the lady doth protest too much, me thinks. You know, that's the line um, spoken by Queen Gertrude in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Perhaps... If questioned hard on all this free love nonsense, Collins might resort to the same claim of Charles Barkley that he once made. And by, and by the way, I should make it clear, I admire Charles Barkley. Well, I mean, admire seems like I'm overdoing it a bit. Admire, mm, no, let's just go with, I think, Barkley was a fabulous, fabulous basketball player and today is a great NBA analyst. But when, when once questioned by a critic about something that appeared in his own biography, Barclay reverted to that tired old cliche used by politicians when questioned about something they've said that in retrospect may not be so smart, maybe you know, appears a bit you know, a tad unseemly or is politically incorrect. Barclay argued, I was misquoted. Well, in his own autobiography? Come on. You know, this, this closely resembles uh, like confused clients on the witness stand whom during tough cross-examinations by opposing counsel respond on the advice of counsel, I don't recall. You know, that sort of thing. In any event, Judy Collins will never be confused with an artistic genius of the caliber of, say, Michelangelo. It's not going to happen. She was no Chopin. She was no Wagner, Mozart, Wagner. Hell, she wasn't even John Lennon or Paul McCartney. She wasn't Glenn Frey or Don Henley even. She wasn't ever remotely in any of these guys' league. No one would make that argument. But Collins, Judy Collins, was extraordinarily gifted. She, really, but no genius. She had talent, Was the, had the voice of a siren. She was beautiful and she had ambition ambition she had it in spades and more importantly for our purposes despite her tremendous gift she appeared to be so normal she appeared on the surface to be so normal not some tormented talent not some tormented genius you know like a michelangelo so it is with this thought in mind that judy collins was extraordinarily talented yet appeared to have her shit together, to be, to be so much like any of us that makes her such an interesting, compelling study. And this is where we will take up the complicated life of Judy Collins in our next episode, part two of Terry Billita, Torture of the Talented, Judy Collins. Hey, thanks for listening. And I hope you will listen in to our next episode. Good day. Goodbye. That's it. In 
outside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see Cheers. 